guys can have a seat. You're going to love to hear this. So the, the message during the 930 service was the shortest one in FCC history. And so if, if nothing else, you guys will be glad about, you guys will be glad about that. It was early in the spring of 1994. I just came through my first winter here in Houston. My family had moved down from the Northeast. And it seemed like that winter, every day was sunny and 62 degrees. Every day was sunny and 62 degrees. And I was thinking, it just can't get any better than this. It can't get any better than this. And then a friend of mine that I I began to get to know, he said to me, you know, they play softball down here in Houston virtually all year long. And I'm like, you're kidding me. I love softball. Maybe it can get better than this. And I decided to find out for myself. And so I drove down to the ball field, actually the ones right across the street here. Um, And um, I got there and there were a ton of people there. And they had bats and they had balls and they had gloves and they were playing softball. And I was so excited and I'm sitting there and this guy walks up to me and he introduces himself. He says, hey, I haven't seen you around here before. And I said, yeah, man, I just moved down here um, from the Northeast. And he says, well, would you like to jump in and play a game with us? Which was code for, we're really desperate we don't have enough people, we're about to forfeit this game, and would you come stand out there, and please don't stink too bad. But anyway, I did, I ran out onto the field with this excited, hey, somebody throw me a ball, and somebody threw me a ball, and my, my softball addiction, it got, it got launched. And as it was, they invited me to come back and play with them again, and I started to play with them regularly, and man, they play a lot of softball down here. And even though... They made fun of the way that I talked. As the weeks and actually as the months started to roll by, I began to feel like I really, like I really started to, to fit in. Well, that is until early June of that year, June 8th, actually. The Rockets, the Houston Rockets, were in the NBA championship, um, apparently for the very first time. And, and the sports park, they had this TV in this central place, and everybody would be piled around the TV. If they weren't playing, they were piled around the TV. And if they were playing, if it was their team's turn to at-bat, they were there piled around the TV. It was this huge deal for them. And um, it was a hard-fought series. I mean, it was a seven-game series. And as the, as the games rolled on, they began to root How do I say this politely? I probably can't. Let's just say they began to root with this incredible intensity, not just for the Rockets, but they began to root with this incredible intensity against the other team, which was the New York Knickerbockers. And so not only was I from the Northeast, but I was born in the Bronx, and I spent a lot of time hanging around Madison Square Garden in New York City, and I was a Knicks fan. And I'm surrounded by these rabid, intense Rockets fans. And, and I might lose a man card here. I'm not really sure. But I have to confess that while these games were going on and the series was progressing and the intensity was ratching up, I just kind of stood in the shadows. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just kind of stood out of any light that might have exposed my allegiance to the Knicks. Did you ever do that? Did you ever figuratively stand in the shadows, kind of stay out of sight, stay out of mind? We've all stood in a literal shadow. We get into a shadow maybe to protect us from the heat 
Or maybe we've gotten into the shadow because we don't want somebody to see us and we don't want to be exposed. And so we've, we've all been in a literal shadow. And I would guess that many of you have, have put yourselves into a figurative shadow as well. Maybe looking to avoid some heat that might be coming for something that you did or something that you didn't do. Or maybe trying to stay unseen or unexposed around some kind of a secret that you had. And that night at the ballpark, by hiding or keeping secret that I was a Knicks fan, I was standing in a figurative shadow. Does that make sense? You know what I mean by that? Have you ever thought about, have you ever given any thought to any areas of your life or times in your life where you have chosen to stand in a figurative shadow? I mean, you pro- maybe you haven't conscious, consciously considered it that way. You've probably never been asked to consider it that way. But I bet that if you took, took just a few minutes, that you could identify some areas or some things in your life that you keep tucked away in the shadows. Not interested in having that part of life lived out in the light. Because you know that it might generate some kind of heat or some kind of cost to you that you're just not willing to bear if you were to bring it out into the light. Maybe you've been in a relationship or in relationships where with family or friends or co-workers and, and as you have uh, participated in those relationships and you've shared things and you've put ideas out on the table, you have been so beaten down by the other person that you've just finally decided, you know what, I'm just going to keep my thoughts, I'm just going to keep my ideas in the shadows. It's just, it's just not worth the cost that I have to pay. Maybe that would be you. Maybe it's some behavior in life. Maybe you've got some behavior in life that's a secret, that you keep buried in the shadows because you just don't want it to be exposed to the light. Maybe it's this front that you have, this happy face that you put on that hides some pain or something that's going on in your life that you don't want other people to see. Can you think of anything like that in your life? I bet that you can. And some things that we put into the shadows, they're really kind of inconsequential. I mean, me keeping the fact that I was a Knicks fan secret at the ballpark, I mean, that didn't make a hill of beans in my life. That, that was inconsequential. But there are some things that we put in the shadows, some parts of our life, that when we put them in the shadows, that they have significant implications. They're very, very consequential. And what is crazy to me is that most people, they would believe that there would be more freedom in life, there would be more joy in life, more gain for themselves or for others around them, maybe some more exhilaration in life, if they would come out of the shadows with these consequential things that they keep squirreled away. But the truth is, most people don't, or at least not voluntarily, because of the potential risk of suffering, of of having to endure something that is going to be unpleasant, or the risk of sacrifice, of having to give up something of value if they would actually put whatever it is that they've had in the shadows out in the light. And I have this belief that the most important and the most damaging thing that people keep in the shadows is their faith in Jesus. I believe that the most important thing and the most damaging thing that people keep in the shadows is their faith in Jesus. And I say that because I have just found in my own life, and I have, I have found as I've hung out with, with other people, that when we allow some component of our faith to drift into the shadows, that we get robbed of this freedom 
or of this joy or of this exhilaration of life that Jesus has come to offer us. And maybe, maybe some of you guys can relate to that as you think about the things that you keep in the shadows. Well, there's this story in the Bible in John chapter 19, and it speaks profoundly to the matter of believers living in the shadows of a secret faith in Jesus. We've been in this series since January 10th where we're looking for clues in the Gospel of John about where God is today. And I think that as he was calling people out of the shadows of a secret faith 2,000 years ago in John chapter 19, that we can find him doing the very same thing today and it could really make a difference for each one of us. There's been two anchor passages in this entire series that kind of form the bridge to get us to the answer of the question of where is God today. And so I want to remind you of those again. The first one comes out of Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, which says Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. In other words, if you have seen Jesus, if you see Jesus, you will know exactly what the God the Father looks like. Jesus himself, he says this in John chapter 14, verse 9. If you have seen me, you have seen God the Father. And so if you're ever wondering what God is like, what God does, all you have to do is look at Jesus and see what he's like and what he does, what he's does or what he's doing, and you'll find God. Jesus is the, is the visible image of the invisible God. And then the second passage that ties to that, it's in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, which says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, he hasn't changed. He isn't changing. He ain't never going to change. The way that we find him today is the way that we find him 2,000 years ago. And it's the same as we would find him 2,000 years from now and even into eternity future. Jesus, he hasn't changed. And so the connect for us is that if we want to know where God is today, we just need to look at where Jesus was 2,000 years ago and then we can connect that to where God is today. That's been the premise of this entire series. And so this morning, I want to look at you at a passage in, in John chapter 19 and it begins in verse 38. But before we get to that and we start reading it, I want to first just summarize for you the first 37 verses of chapter 19. It starts with Jesus in the middle of this trial in Jerusalem before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. The Jewish religious leaders, they've accused Jesus of this crime that they believe warrants death. And in fact, they want Jesus dead in the worst of ways. But they have no authority at all to execute him. So they bring Jesus to the person that does have that authority, and that's Pontius Pilate. And so we pick up in John chapter 19, and Pilate Pilate has Jesus severely beaten. That's where we pick it up in verse 1. You see Pilate ordering Jesus to be flogged, to be beaten to a pulp. And his hope is, is that if that he does this to Jesus, that somehow that would satisfy the Jews, that they would drop this this crazed death wish that they have against Jesus. And so Jesus is beat to a pulp and he's presented to the crowd. But this crowd is angry. This is a mob. And they're all screaming for Jesus to be crucified. Crucify him, they're saying. This crowd is on the verge of riot. And so ultimately, Pilate sentences Jesus to death by crucifixion. Not because of guilt, 
Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, but rather because of simply political expediency. If he lets Jesus go, then there's a riot. And then he's got to clean up the riot, and he's got to answer to Rome about the riot, and that will make his life miserable. And so he picks the path of least resistance, and he sends Jesus off to be crucified. And then we see in John chapter 19, verse 18, we see Jesus, he's already battered in body. He is literally nailed to a large wooden cross. Listen, just picture this. Jesus is stripped and he's laid down on this large wooden cross and his arms are stretched so wide before they drive the spikes to his, to, through his hands that his arms would be basically ripped from the shoulder sockets. The muscles, the tendons, they, they would be torn. And then they would drive this spike through the two, uh, both of his feet, this one large spike through his feet. And then they'd lift him up on this cross in front of this great crowd of people. I cannot even imagine the sights and the sounds of what it was like to be there. And Jesus, he's hanging there on the cross by these spikes that are driven through his hands and driven through his feet. And there would be this horrific, horrific pain in his shoulders and his feet every time he would try and raise himself up so that he could take a breath. And he's left to die this excruciating, humiliating death. And what is incomprehensible to me is that Scripture says that Jesus' whole life was pointed to this moment. Jesus' whole life was pointed to the cross. And the Bible says that every person that has ever lived, that will ever live, played this part in sending Jesus to the cross to experience this excruciating, humiliating death. Scripture says that I've been born with this sin nature. You've been born with this sin nature. And in God's world and his economy, a sinner can't be in the presence of a holy God. Not in this life and not in the life to come. So there's not just this physical death that we deserve, that Scripture says we deserve. We deserve a death penalty because of our sin. But not just this physical death, this eternal separation from God in this place called hell. And in this astounding display of mercy and of grace, Jesus, the only person who has never sinned, the only person who does not deserve the death penalty and being separated from from God, he willingly steps in to take our place. It says in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God showed his great love for us. By sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. This was the culmination of the good news that was the cornerstone of Jesus' three-year ministry. And now it's playing out with Jesus as he's hanging from the cross. And so we, we look as we continue in John 19 and we see Jesus and these two other men that are crucified alongside him. And they're high up on this hill for all to see. Because when the Romans crucified someone... They would leave them hanging on the cross until their bodies would start to decay. And the birds would start to pick their flesh off their bones in this gruesome, gruesome sight. But people would get the fact that you don't cross Rome, that crime in Rome does not pay. But this day of this crucifixion, it was the day before the Sabbath, which was a holy day for the Jewish people. And in fact, it was this special Sabbath because it was also the Jewish Passover. And the Jewish law said that if a dead body was left exposed and visible overnight, it would defile the holy day. And so the Jews, they go to Pilate 
and they say, we want the bodies taken down, which would have not been in the plan for the Romans. But Pilate, he had already acquiesced to the Jews in executing a man that he knew was innocent just to appease this angry mob. And so Pilate's not going to take a stand now just to, more, just to get a little more run out of his anti-crime billboard, which would have been these crucified bodies, and then risk inflaming the Jews to riot anyway. He, he won't do that, and so he allows that the dead bodies would be taken down. And what that would mean is that the bodies, that they would be dumped outside the walls of the city in a common landfill, in a garbage heap. And so now I want to pick up with you in verse 38, which is on, on page 828, if you grab the Bible on the way in. John chapter 19, starting in verse 38. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who would come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial customs, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of the crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so because it was a day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. It was absolutely staggering that these two men would be a part of the story, at least in this way. Verse 38, it called Joseph a secret follower of Jesus. And then verse 39, it says, Nicodemus is the man who came to Jesus at night, which you can read about in John chapter 3. Somewhere over the course of Jesus' three-year ministry, both of these men came to be believers. But up until this moment, they lived their lives of faith in the shadows. They were afraid to make this allegiance to Jesus known for fear of the cost that they would have to pay, of what they would have to give up if they brought it to light. Scripture and Jewish historical records points to both Joseph and Nicodemus as two men of wealth and position and power and influence. And it says that they were both members of the ruling Jewish council, which was called the Sanhedrin. And it describes Nicodemus as a Pharisee, which means that he was a Jewish religious elitist. And yet somewhere over the course of Jesus' three-year ministry, both of these men became believers. But up until this moment, they lived their faith in the shadows. They were afraid to make this allegiance to Jesus known. Yet in Scripture, we see some events through Jesus' ministry that involve these two guys. And you can see hints of a birthed faith. You see them defending Jesus against this growing movement to defame him and then to, to kill him. Though in truth, their defense, it wasn't out of an overt um, display of their faith, but rather it was under the guise of prudency or uh, le proper legal proceedings. Never had these men made a public stand that they believed Jesus was the Son of God. Never had they put their faith in Jesus into the light. No, their faith had remained in the shadows both of them, they intuitively knew that if they were compelled to bring their faith in Jesus out of the shadows and into the light, that there would be great risk, risk of suffering, 
risk of sacrifice. And the truth is they were right. Jesus' own words in Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and 30. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and child, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple without giving up everything that you own. Now, Jesus is not literally saying that you need to hate your family and you need to give away everything that you have to follow him. But what he is saying is that everything that you value greatly, the people in your lives, the material things in your lives that you value greatly, they must be surrendered to the commitment that you have to him first. That's what he's saying. And so these two men, for some time now, they've been counting the cost trying to quantify this level of suffering and this level of sacrifice that stepping out of their secret faith would bring. And what was at risk for them in terms of suffering and sacrifice was huge. It was, it was huge, and yet all of a sudden, this matter of faith in Jesus became huge-er. huge Is that a word? Huge-er. You know what I mean. All of a sudden, the cru- in the crucifixion of Jesus, they sense this unavoidable call to live their faith more fully surrendered to the light that they had not sensed before enough, strongly enough to compel them out of the shadows. But for some reason now, they sense this gain in their life that dwarfed the impending risk of suffering and sacrifice. And so in the passage, we see that they go and they ask for Jesus' body. Now, they were, they, were gonna, they were not going to allow Jesus' dead body to be put in this common garbage dump outside the walls of Jerusalem. And so these two influential men from the opposition now provide Jesus with this burial of honor, which is evidenced by the investment that they make in the, in the quantity of burial spices and in, in this unused tomb. And all of a sudden, their faith comes out of the shadows profoundly. What in the world could have changed such that now, after Jesus is dead, I mean, their secret would have been safe now. No more Jewish council meetings trying to condemn or kill Jesus where they would have to creatively or discreetly try and thwart those plots. No more of those meetings. No more conversations with family and friends about this blasphemous, rabble-rousing guy named Jesus where they would have to hide their secret affection from them. Why would they make this public proclamation of their allegiance to Jesus now? What was different on this day than in all of the other days prior to this where they had encountered Jesus? What made that day 2,000 years ago different? I mean, they had, for three years, they had been exposed to Jesus' ministry. And they had likely not only heard of all the powerful, authoritative teachings that Jesus had done and of his incredible miracles, they likely would have experienced some of them firsthand. And in those settings, they were stirred to believe that what Jesus said about himself, it was true. And they had actually put their faith in him, yet they had remained in the shadows. The very life of Jesus was not able to call Joseph and Nicodemus out of their secret faith. What was different about this day? The only answer can be the cross. The only answer can be the cross. The difference that day was the cross. They were called out of the shadows of their faith by the cross, by what they saw 
before them with Jesus on it. It was the reality of the cross, of being overwhelmed by God's love for them that was manifested on the cross that they could no longer resist. And they decisively responded and they exited the shadows of this secret faith. And they put it all on the line. They put their reputations, they put their jobs, they put their relationships, they put their families all on the line. None of it was left in the shadows. Do you want to know where God was 2,000 years ago? God was calling these two believers out of the shadows of a secret faith through the love and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Do you want to know where God is today? God is calling believers out of the shadows of their secret faith through the love and the sacrifice that's expressed by Jesus on the cross. And friends, there are too many people that claim to be followers of Jesus that are living in the shadows of a secret faith. That the fear of suffering and the selfishness that thwarts sacrifice is hindering their ability to experience life in all of its fullness. And it's holding back the advancement of God's kingdom. Oh sure, they may, they may say that they're followers of Jesus, They may attend public gatherings that are intended to worship Jesus if it fits into the other things that are on their schedule. And I mean, that was far more than Joseph and Nicodemus had initially done. But there are still parts of their faith, the working out of their faith that are still in the shadows for far too many believers today. There are some believers that are so deeply undercover that for all intents and purposes, their lives are no different than the unbelievers in their life. They look just like them, and they sound just like them, and they give just like them, and they serve just like them. And there is this persistent sin in their life that they are unwilling to give up or get help for. And there's no deep sacrifice of resources or time to advance the causes of the kingdom. All of these things are bold expressions of a public faith in Jesus. And I say this very humbly. And I say this with no judgment because I am not one that is in a place to judge. But that represents so many people in the room today and on any Sunday, not just in this church, but in churches all across the globe that are living in this secret faith in the shadows. And some people are perfectly okay with the dead faith that James talks about in James chapter 2. I mean, frankly, some people are just okay with that. But I understand that for some, prayerfully most, You're not okay with your secret faith. But it's just that the fear of the suffering or the fear of the sacrifice that goes along with this progressive surrender of your faith into the light, that it just creates this barrier. It was like that for Joseph and, and for Nicodemus. But if that's you, there's so much hope for you. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity but of power and love and self-discipline. If you're sitting here today and you just know that there's parts of your faith that are in the shadows, if you're stuck, if your faith is passionless or directionless, the answer is found in the cross. If you want to give it up, if you want to pull it out of the shadows, the answer is found in the cross. If you would allow yourself to be captured and to be amazed by the cross for what it is, And for what it represents, where is God today? 
He's using the cross of Jesus to turn secret believers into bold followers of him. And he's even using the cross to take bold followers of Jesus to refresh them and to renew them. Would you allow him to do that? Back in January, I began to spend time with a man in the church who had become a follower of Jesus back in the fall. And if you would have asked him then, in the context of this message today, he would, he would say to you, my faith was in the shadows. I was living a secret faith. But a month ago, he was one of the participants on the Men's Catalyst Retreat Weekend. And this man, he had the opportunity to encounter the love of God as expressed through the cross. He, he was able to experience that in a profound way where Jesus had died 2,000 years ago. And that encounter was so profound and so po- compelling that he decisively responded to God's call to pull him out of the shadows. And he has emerged from that weekend on fire. He is living out his faith now boldly on fire. And it's spilling over into his marriage. And it's spilling over into his kids, into his family. And it's spilling over into his workplace. And when we meet together now, I feel like I have to almost duct tape him to the chair as he talks about all of what's going on in his life and what he thinks God is calling him to do. It's an amazing thing. In fact, both, we had both the men's and the women's weekend go on, Catalyst Weekend, in the last, in the last month. And over 140 men and women have been freshly gripped or maybe for some gripped for the very first time by the immense love of God for them as manifested on the cross. And the impact that we've already seen in the kingdom has been stunning. Friends, if you have any parts of your faith that are lurking in the shadows, will you allow that to exit the shadows? God is calling you from the cross. Would you uh, decisively respond to him? This Friday will be the anniversary of Jesus going to the cross almost 2,000 years ago. And so this week, this week presents this great opportunity to be freshly and profoundly struck by the love of Jesus as expressed on the cross. If you feel like you want to emerge from this secret faith that you have, this is a great week to do that. And I want to leave you with four quick suggestions that might help you to experience the power of Christ in that way Uh, in a way that will maybe matter to you. So the first one is starting tomorrow through Thursday, four days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Then read each of the gospel accounts of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four of them, four days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Read a gospel account about the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. And imagine yourself in the crowd as you read that with Joseph and with Nicodemus. And then if you want a powerful visual experience of what Joseph and Nicodemus experienced 2,000 years ago, watch the Passion of the Christ movie sometime this week. Maybe Thursday or maybe Friday after you've read the Gospels or a couple of the Gospel accounts. Watch the Passion of the Christ movie. And parents, if you've never watched that with your family, you just need to know that there are parts of it that are graphic and violent. Watch the Passion. If you want a powerful visual experience of what Nicodemus and Joseph experienced that day, watch Passion of the Christ. And then come on Friday and be part of this come and go event that we call the Good Friday experience. It is a powerful way to encounter Jesus on the cross. Powerful. 
And it's come and go. So come up here at some point during the day and do that. And then finally, simply be here next week to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. Friends, the difference maker in living out a faith, a bold and vibrant faith out of the shadows and in the light is the cross. Father in heaven, um, I am so grateful that this week um, I have had the opportunity to stand before the cross figuratively in my mind and to re-experience again the love and the sacrifice that you made for me. And Father, I know that for me it has compelled me. It has compelled me out of the shadows, those things that I keep in the shadows of my faith. It has compelled me to take them out. And I pray, Father, that for my friends here, as they consider the cross, that any aspects, any components of their faith that they've left in the shadows, that they would be compelled by the cross and the great sacrifice that you made for them, that they would pull them out. And I pray even, Father, that there might be some in the room today that haven't yet decided to put their faith in you, that they too would spend time in front of the cross, truly understanding what the cross represents and means in their own life, and that they, they too may come out of the shadows and begin to live this faith in you. Father, I pray that with great hope and with great expectation. In Jesus' name, amen.